where you're coming from and your experiences, you're going to answer that differently. But I would posit there's more than one thing that makes a good father, and there's not one clear path, do this and this is what makes you a good father. In fact, you can walk into any bookstore and find self-help books. You can walk into any Christian bookstore and find all kinds of literature written on being a good mom or a good dad. And if you were to line them up and look at them and read the dust jacket and see what they say or read through them, you would see that they all say similar things but also different. So there's no clear right way this is what a good dad is or this is what a good mom is. But there are some qualities that carry through. And I think as a father speaking myself, one of the things that we tend to focus on and think about is what am I leaving my children? How am I impacting them? For many of us, if we're honest, there's a lot of anxiety at times that comes with that. And to be totally candid, I'm looking at it thinking, how am I messing up my children? (laughs) When they reach my age and they reflect back on their childhood, what are they going to share with their counselor? (laughs) (laughs) can I get them out of my house into adulthood with the least amount of damage possible (laughs) and so we tend to set a bar there like can we get them to adulthood minimally damaged you know (laughs) and that tends to be a goal sometimes more than necessarily getting them to adulthood feeling like you have really accomplished something but we leave something to our children Whether intended or not, depending on our actions and our choices, we all leave something to our children. And if we're not careful, we can spend too much focus right now on what we think we're going to get ready for our children and and miss perhaps what they need. There's an interesting story in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus is telling a parable and he's talking to a crowd and in the context originally he's talking about not worrying about your provision and so he tells a story about someone who thinks that they can beat the clock and who can do better someone who thinks that they've got everything taken care of and he said beware guard against every kind of greed life is not measured by how much you own and then he told them a story A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room enough for all of my crops. And then he said, I know. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And then I will have enough room to store all of my wheat and other goods. And I will sit back and I will say to myself, my friend... You have enough stored away for years to come. Now, take it easy and eat and drink and be merry. God has blessed me so abundantly. I don't even know where to put all this stuff. So clearly what I need to do is tear down my storage bins and build bigger ones so I can hold on to even more stuff because that's the right course of action here. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. And then who will get everything that you've worked for? 
if we're not careful, we can go through life, uh, go through life trying to grasp things and just acquire stuff and hold on and gather more and more. And here's someone who God had blessed with fertile land and he had good crops that were producing and he had so much in overabundance that he could not hold everything he had. And so rather than recognize that because he had so much he couldn't hold it all, maybe he should be doing something else with it, he thought, I need to find a way to hold more. And God called this foolish because we don't know what tomorrow brings. And I can try to hold as much stuff as I possibly can, but at some point I'm going to run out of room and, and I can't grip anything else. I'll give you a more modern example of this. Just out of curiosity, has anyone in here ever heard of Henry Miller? Good, that proves my point. Henry Miller, and that's okay. You don't need to recognize him. Uh, my wife and I lived in California for a long time. If you were from California, you might, and again, it's a might, you might know that name. Henry Miller was a giant in Californian history, and then he faded like that right after his death, and that's why none of you know who he is. He was born in Germany in 1827. 1827. And he moved to New York in 1846 at the age of 19. And then he moved across country to San Francisco in 1850. Anybody remember what happened in 1849 in San Francisco? Gold rush. Henry Miller was smart, though. He recognized everybody was heading to California to go try and get their piece of gold. And he didn't try to do that. Henry Miller realized there's a whole bunch of people out there in that territory, and they're going to need to eat. So in 1850, Henry Miller moved to California, and he got a job working as a butcher. And he moved there with $6. Now, I did the inflation last night to give you a comparison. It's the equivalent of $200 today. So Henry Miller moves cross-country with $200 in his pocket, if it were today. And he goes and he gets himself a job as a butcher in this new bustling city of San Francisco the year after the gold rush starts. And he works as a butcher for four or five years and he saves up enough money and he realizes, forget this, the real money is in land and in cows. And so he begins to buy land. And now he's a butcher and he owns the cattle. And then he buys more cattle. And then he buys more land. And then he buys more cattle. And then he buys more land. And he does this, and over the course of his lifetime, he acquires 1.4 million acres of property in California. That's 22,000 square miles. He owned today what would be the equivalent of seven of the eight counties in the San Joaquin Valley where all that farmland is. This was a massive land baron in the 1800s, and you've never heard of him. Henry Miller literally owned like half of California by the time he reached the end of his life. He died at age 89 in 1916. And in 1916, he had a net worth of $40 million. In today's inflation, that's the equivalent of $940 million. So he moved to California with 200 bucks in his pocket. And by the time he died at 89, he was worth $940 million in today's value. 
and he owned almost half the state of California. They said of Henry Miller, and it was spread across the state, they said of Henry Miller that he could travel from the Oregon border all the way to Mexico, and keep in mind, this is on horse, and never spend the night on land that he didn't own or control. So he could go 800 miles from the Oregon border all the way to Mexico, and every time he stopped, he was staying on one of his ranches. I'm just giving you context of how much land this man owns. And guess what? He dies in 1916. And yet due to inheritance taxes and then only having one child, a daughter, and then never having trained a successor to take over his cattle industry within a few years, it's all gone. And you've never heard of him. 100 years later, this man owned half of California. And 100 years later, a century later, you've never even heard of Henry Miller. He was a giant in his age. And he grabbed more and 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 more. And by the end of his lifetime, his hands were so full, we can't really even wrap our heads around this. I mean, this would, an 800-mile stretch of land, and you can stop anywhere you want, and you own that piece of land or you've got somewhere close that you can stop by and you control it. And this man has built an empire of real estate and cattle. And yet within just a few years of his death, it's gone. It's dissipated due to inheritance taxes, due to not having a successor, due to not having heirs to pass it on to, having not built the business in such a way that it would continue. And then he disappears from history. He's a footnote in Californian history. And yet in his time, he was a giant and he owned so much stuff and he gathered it all together and he had all of this stuff that he was holding in his hands. But here's the thing when we keep a closed fist. I can only hold so much and I can scoop it up. You ever been a kid at a party and a pinata busts? You ever seen kids, if you haven't been one, at a party when they break open that pinata and there's all that candy on the ground? The smart kid is the one who gets down on their knees and they're like shoveling it between their legs so nobody else can get it, right? <laughs> but most of the time you see these kids and they're grabbing handfuls of this candy, right? And they've got as much as they can grab and they're holding it and it's spilling out of the top of their hands and they're desperate to grab more candy and so they're trying to scoop it up and every time they bend over, more is falling out. And so it's this game of how much can I hold in my hands? But here's the problem. You can only hold so much in your hands when they're closed. And if we're not careful, we go through life that way, thinking, I'm going to acquire more and more stuff. And oftentimes we're thinking, I will admit it as dads, I need to provide for my family. And I, I need to do well for them. And I'm going to pass this on someday. And I'm going to hold on to this stuff, and then someday it will be theirs. Grabbing stuff, pulling things in and acquiring. And maybe it's wealth, maybe it's land, maybe it's other ways. I'm using this as an example, but you get the idea to the dads in the room. There are different ways that we try to grab onto stuff, and we're holding it, thinking that we've got this for our kids. And yet, I show you a better way. Instead of standing with closed fists, grasping as much as we can, the greatest gift that we can give our families, and I realize predominantly here today I'm speaking to fathers, but this applies to everyone. The greatest gift we can give our families is instead to learn to live with open hands. 
Recently, I read a book by Indy Wilson called Death by Living. It's a collection of essays about life. He's a Christian man, about life, family, the things that happen. And if we can learn to take on the philosophy of death by living, the idea that we live ourselves out, and when we reach death, we have spent ourselves on the kingdom of God, and we've spent ourselves on family. And this morning, I want to read just a brief little portion of one of his essays, give you a contrast to Henry Miller. On Saturday nights, our family gathers at my parents' house to eat and laugh and drink to grace. And my sisters and their husbands come with their tribes, and I come with mine. My grandmother, mother to my father, went into the ground on the top of a hill two years ago. And so now James Irwin Wilson comes to these Saturday dinners alone and yet not. He is the one most likely to ask if he can invite an ex-convict or to need a ride because he has loaned his cart knowingly to a thief, and now it's gone. His heart struggles and his blood struggles. The man who rode at the Naval Academy now walks with a cane. The boy who was there when a stallion was rearing and his father was falling to the ground. The boy who ran a 10-acre farm and finished high school and then worked eight-hour shifts every night in the Omaha stockyards is now 85 years old and yet is not spent, though he is trying to be. My grandfather has no intention of ending his life with closed fists. His hands will be open, and when he ends, they will be empty. I began meeting with him early on Saturday afternoons, and I set up a camera. He was uncomfortable the first time because I was demanding that he talk about himself and because he had forgotten to wear a tie. I laughed in my sweater and jeans, and he has not forgotten his tie since. When he turned 85, he asked for no presents. Like a good hobbit, though I have always said he's more entish, he wanted to give something to us. He is not in the business of accumulating, especially now as he hears the crowd counting down. He had some birthday menu requests with pie for dessert. Smart man. And he wanted to tell stories to his great-grandchildren. That Saturday, aunts and uncles and cousins came, and when he had eaten and sung and laughed, we settled him into an armchair and 16 great-grandchildren wrapped around his feet on the floor. And he had no doodads to give them and no cheap party favors. Instead, he gave those kids what they could never buy for themselves and what they could not find on their own. He gave them stories and memories of a boy on a Nebraska farm with brothers, a boy trying to break a wild prairie Mustang. He told them memories of his mother who was born in a sod dugout in the prairie grass. He gave a crowd of mostly small people who all exist because of his choices in his moments, a glimpse at a time long ago, at moments extinct, a vapor seen with his eyes and then remembered. I, along with all of those children, reap a tremendous daily harvest thanks to his faithfulness Thanks to the man with the cane who has received his life with joy and whose large hands have always been open. Thanks to the author who crafted such a character and set him on his path, who claimed his heart and helped him carry his burden. For my part, as he sat and talked, I held a camera. And a time will come, I pray, when I am the spent one in the armchair aiming to give away. 
And if I reach his age in 2063, I hope, even then, to introduce this man to generations unborn and to give them more than words, but the flickering image on his face and the sound of his voice. On his birthday, this grandfather is not yet done. He has more wealth to give. And so he chose a passage of scripture for each of his children and their spouses, for each of their children and their spouses, and for each of their children. Forty-six souls counting. He asked the son to arrange and print each passage on archive paper, and he wrote a note of marginalia in each, in the sharp, perfect handwriting of another time. And to the youngest of all, my sister's two-month-old son, he handwrote a simple message next to Colossians 1, 9 through 12. You may not remember me, but I remember you, and I prayed for you when you were one day old. Great-grandpa. My sister cried. My grandfather's accounts are in order. His seed is sown. His hoard is elsewhere, in the faces at his feet, and in the hundreds of thousands of stories in his own story that have touched lives and will continue to shape. This is a life well spent. This is a life of open hands. And it doesn't take any special great skill to do it. It doesn't need huge amounts of wealth. It doesn't need a cattle empire. It doesn't need a fancy education. It doesn't need a professional career. It needs somebody willing to share. Someone willing to live with open hands. Let me give you another scripture example. We're going to stay in Luke. We're going to jump forward to a different story Jesus told. One of his I would say most famous stories in Luke chapter 15. We know it as the story of the prodigal son. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to read a few verses towards the end. And the son has wandered away. He's squandered his father's inheritance. Now he's coming home destitute and broke. He has nothing left. And he's thinking, I'd rather go work for my father as a slave than continue to live in this broken state. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 20, it says, And so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. And his son said, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick! Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill that calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. Beautiful story. Probably, I would argue, one of the most well-known stories of a father figure in the entire Bible. So Jesus is telling this story about this good father who welcomes home this son. And what stood out to me when I was reading this again this week was just a simple line in that story about his reaction towards his son. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him. Desi, come here. He just loves it when I do things like this on the spot. (laughs) This is my child who wants to be the center of attention. (laughs) You can see it in his body posture right now, can't you? (laughs) 
I'm gonna give you a really hard command. He's staring at me like I'm gonna kill you later. <laughs> Son, I want you to embrace me. We are muttering words of loving encouragement right now. You just can't hear it in the mic. Turn this way. There, now you don't have to look at everybody. I want you to see something, though. Don't miss this. Where are my hands? Where are his hands? You can't embrace with closed fists. I mean, I can do this, but it looks dumb. Embrace me. Uh, yeah, exactly. You can go ahead and be seated. Give him a hand for letting his dad embarrass him. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him and ran to him and kissed him and embraced him. When you are running towards someone and you're going to embrace them, what is your body posture? Is it like this? He embraced him. You need open hands to embrace someone. You heard that tongues and interpretation as I was getting ready to start this. And we have a heavenly father who loves you so very much. And if you hear nothing else I say today, please, please hear this. You have a father in heaven with open hands today who wants to embrace you. Some of us have very painful, painful stories. They include fathers with closed fists. But that is not the case for you today. There is someone who loves you deeper than you could possibly imagine. And he is here today with open hands. And he wants to embrace you. Now I'm way off my notes, and that's fine. Some of us associate hands with pain because of our own history. And when hands come at us, it's time to brace because they're going to hurt. But there's a different image today of a father with open hands. And they're not open because he's going to slap or hit. They're not open because he's going to push away. They're open because he wants to embrace you. And you can come into his presence today and experience a love that you may not have ever felt from any earthly father. But he says, I am here and I love you and I want to embrace you with my open hands. To all of the fathers in the room, many of us, in fact, I'm confident probably all of us struggle with our own inadequacies, especially if you do care for your family. Because when you care for your family, you want the best for them. And if you are honest with yourself, then you look in the mirror and you think, nope, not good enough. And I look at my family and I think I want better for them than what I can give. We live in a society today full of brokenness, and I hate it, but often in entertainment and in comedy, we always make the dad out to be the bumbling buffoon. 
Look at any cartoon you see, practically all of them. The dad's the idiot that the rest of the family puts up with. And it's a lie. That's not real. Fathers, you have value today. You have incredible, immense value to your family. I asked a question when I was starting, and I said, what makes a father? It's more than the ability to produce progeny. I'll word it that way. Adults, you hear what I'm saying. Because there's enough of us in this room who had someone do that in our existence, but they weren't there. So that doesn't make you a father. So hear the inverse side for some of you who also grieve for the fact that you did not have children of your own. That's not what makes you a father. A father is the one with open hands. Biblical image is the father is the one who embraces, the one who shows love. Open hands are generous, and they know how to give away. There are enough Henry Millers in this lifetime who will build empires that get passed to no one. We need a lot more humble Christian men out there who were born and raised on a farm in nowhere, Nebraska, and who reach 85 and have 46 children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and maybe you don't physically have the children, but you've touched lives. And they come to you and they look to you for support and for love and encouragement. Open hands. Fathers have open hands. Good dads have open hands, and they're generous. And they give away, and they give away, and their goal is to reach the end of their life having given away rather than having accumulated. Open hands reach out to others. What's the image you'll see on any kind of aid relief, right? Someone reaching out, extending, helping someone out. It's an open hand. This is an invitation. Not this. This. An open hand reaches to other people and is willing to help. Open hands embrace their families. Open hands, and this is a challenge, especially for some of us who come from such painful backgrounds. Open hands, worship. This applies to everyone, but I'll admit I'm aiming more at dads and males today. You don't worship like this. You can look tough like this. You can be reserved like this. But this is not a posture of worship. It's harder to do. But open hands are a posture of worship. Oh, Heavenly Father, you have been so good to me. And I don't deserve your love and grace. But thank you for extending it to me and for having your presence here today. This is a posture of worship. This is a posture of surrender. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I can't predict everything. I can't take care of everything. But God, I give it back to you. This is the posture of a man who's demonstrating to his family. This is the posture of a man who's showing the people around him, whether they are his physical children or they're just children in the church, and they look at him and they see the guy who can stand there and he can lift his hands. And he's not too proud to tell his heavenly father how much he loves him. A good father has open hands. A good father is able to surrender. 
set aside that pride, that anger, whatever else it may be. Say, God, I give it to you. And in the greatest example of open hands that our Heavenly Father gave, at one point he came to this earth and he lived a perfect life and he gave and he gave and he gave of himself. And then Jesus reached the end and he went through a mock trial that was a joke. He was condemned for a crime he didn't commit. And then he willingly allowed himself to be executed to pay the price for my mistakes, to pay the price for your mistakes. And it's no accident that he reaches the end and he's nailed to a cross and it's with open hands and it's with arms out wide. That our Savior says, I will pay the price for you. And he's here to embrace you today with his presence and with his spirits. But in a physical, very, very physical symbol, 2,000 years ago, he came and he stretched out his hands and opened wide. He says, I love you enough to do this. You have enough value to me that I will die with open hands so they can embrace you. Indy Wilson, in this book, has got a quote that caught my attention. He says, in the ground, we all have open hands. You do whatever you want in this life, acquire as much as you possibly can, but in the end, when you hit that ground and we put you under, everybody's got open hands. And as I'm coming to a close, if you will stand with me today, can I challenge you to live life now with open hands? You're going to reach it at some point. But you can choose to live this way. And the good news is, this is not impossible. There's no special requirements for this. You can live with open hands. You can give generously to people of what you have. You can reach out to help others. You can embrace with open hands. You can lift your hands in worship and in surrender with open hands. There's no special requirement for open hands. And like our Heavenly Father, who loves us so much, He comes to us today and He says, I have open hands and arms held wide today. So for every father, every male who plays a father figure, I challenge you today to live with open hands to everyone else. May we remember to live with open hands. And if you're hearing this today, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, and I pray you really hear it today and you struggle with pain and hurt and rejection and all kinds of just junk that happens from living in a broken world, may you feel the presence of your heavenly Father who is here today and he's telling you, I love you so much and I have open hands. And these are hands that love, and they're hands that embrace. These are hands that welcome you home. And I would encourage us before we leave this place today to spend a moment in prayer. If you are here with families, could you gather together with your families, whether that's in the pew or if you need to spread out in the aisle, 
if it's down front, it doesn't matter, but try to get with your family units. If you are here today and you don't have family with you, find someone. And let me, let me actually reverse that. To our families here today, look around and find someone who doesn't have family with them. I don't want anybody to be alone right now. But we're going to spend a moment as we get ready to close out this service, and I want you to, to group up with your families. Do that right now if you need to. Find people who don't have family with them. Pull them to you. We are the family of God. We're going to pray for a moment before we go about our day. We want to pray a blessing and an encouragement on families. I'm going to step away from this mic for just a moment and join my own family. And I want you to spend a moment and pray together. Pray encouragement. If you need to hear this today, please, please hear me that your Heavenly Father is here with open hands. And you do not have to walk this road alone. Oh, Jesus, we love you so much. And we thank you that we can be together as families. And your blessing, even if it's not our physical family, it's our church family.